0: It's Aaron Erin Helliard here with another episode of Baroque Banter. It's my great, great pleasure to speak with my dear friend Simon Rickard today in our podcast. Simon and I have known each other for over two decades and he's been Principal Bassoon with the Orchestra of the Antipodes since the orchestra began over 20 years ago. Simon is an extraordinary person, probably the most talented individual I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. Simon is not only a specialist in historical bassoons, but is an extremely talented and highly regarded gardener and botanist. As a bassoonist, he studied at the Canberra School of Music and also at the Conservatorium in The Hague uh, before touring and recording with countless period ensembles both here in Australia and in Europe, including Les Arts the Gabrielli Consort, here in Australia with Pinchgut Opera, the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, as I mentioned, the Oxford Antipodes, but also other ensembles such as the ACO, Latitude 37, Genesis Baroque, the Australian Haydn Ensemble and Ironwood. He also runs his own renaissance consort called Unholy Racket, which is named for the renaissance woodwind instrument in which Simon is a leading specialist. As a gardener, Simon has an extraordinary career, formerly the head gardener of the Diggers Club, overseeing the much-loved gardens of Heronswood and the Garden of St Earth. Simon now runs his own garden design and communication consultancy, He's presented lectures and workshops for bodies, including the Stephanie Alexander Kitchen Garden Foundation and the Australian Landscape Conference. He leads international tours for Botanica World Discoveries and is the author of several gardening books. Simon Ricard, it is so wonderful to be talking to you. I miss you terribly. How are you doing?
1: Oh, thank you, Erin. I miss you too. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm doing surprisingly well under the circumstances, i I feel pretty fortunate that the other strand of my career in garden design and consultancy is actually taking off, but I really miss my musical colleagues and uh, my audiences and of course the music.
0: I know, I know, it's crazy. And a large part of your career as a botanist was, um, was on cruise ships, wasn't it?
1: <laughs> yes, it was. I lead garden <sighs> tours overseas um, and I do a lot on cruise ships, so of course that's no longer possible.
0: And w- was so- something was cancelled? Like quiet. I remember we were talking about when I was going to Japan. You were also going to Japan, is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah, that's right. I was meant to be leading two tours back to back to look at the cherry blossoms. And today I'm meant to be at Chelsea Flower Show,
0: um, which is wh- where is that in London? Oh, of course. Oh no, yeah. Simon, <laughs> <laughs> our plans were you know put awry by COVID nineteen. Well, look, it's so wonderful to talk to you today on Baroque Banter, and Simon. Um, we've known each other for over 20 years and you have taught me so much about music uh, performance and music history and dance and the bassoon and it's just been an immense pleasure and honour to have met you and so it's great that we can chat for our wonderful Pinchgut audience and talk about historical performance practice today.
1: Thanks Erin, well likewise.
0: And so look, tell me Simon, you obviously grew up probably like me on a modern instrument but tell me about your sort of early engagement with historical instruments.
1: Yeah when I uh, was a kid I played the clarinet and uh, my parents workmates used to make cassette tapes remember those? I Uh, do. They used to make cassette (laughs) tapes for me um, and they to help expose me to classical music so they'd make recordings of classical music and I found that the repertoire I was the most, most attracted to were composers like um, Vivaldi, I love the Four Seasons, and J.S. Bach, I heard the, the Stokowski um, transcriptions of the organ music for Gigantic Orchestra, and I loved that repertoire, and so I started to find out about Baroque repertoire. And I discovered that the clarinet wasn't really a thing during um, the Baroque times, but there was this instrument called the bassoon, which I loved the look of, you know, with its weird curly crook and everything. And so I pestered my parents to buy me a bassoon. And uh, mum and dad, to their great credit, although they didn't have a clue what this thing was, and it was a big outlay of money for them at that stage, um, they bought me a bassoon and uh, I began playing the bassoon when I was 14. And that was because I fell in love with Baroque repertoire and I wanted an instrument that could play that repertoire. Um, and so I then went and did a degree on the modern bassoon at the Canberra School of Music. And I have to admit, I, my heart was never really in it because we were always playing you know, non-Baroque repertoire. And I was just so fascinated by this one particular um, period in Western music history, the sort of Renaissance and Baroque. And I found it actually quite difficult, uh, quite a slog to get through my degree playing Mahler and Brahms and, you know, Shostakovich and yeah. Kofiev, which is all great music, if you like their repertoire, but my heart wasn't in it. After I finished my degree, I went off to study in Holland and specialise in historical bassoons, which is what the plan had been since I was 14 years old.
0: That is amazing. It's so interesting, Simon. It was exactly the same age for me when I discovered the Harp Squad, 14.
1: <laughs> there you go. Great minds think alike. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I do remember cassettes very well. I, I, I remember my mother. I, I used to um, curate from ABC Classic FM um, all this weird and wonderful music from the Baroque and then I had these, like, shoeboxes of cassette tapes. And I remember oh. my, my mother was, like, maybe about, I don't know, 10 years ago, said, do you still need all those cassette
1: tapes?
0: <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I regret now sort of getting rid of them because they're kind of unique historical documents. So, now you were at the ANU, so the School of Music, before it was inaugurated, with uh, before it was um, joined with the ANU. Is that, is that right?
1: Uh, that's right. When I began my single studies at the School of Music, Um, with Richard McIntyre, Uh, the uh, School of Music, the Canberra School of Music was a freestanding institution. And uh, it was sort of during my degree that it became uh, my undergraduate degree that it became part of the ANU.
0: And you didn't do any historical instruments there at that time? That was only when you were in Holland?
1: No, no, that's right. In fact, there was open hostility towards them um, at that time. Uh, they were seen, h- historical instruments were seen as nichey and um, insubstantial, not real music. And so there was a, a very high degree of open hostility towards them. And so I and a few of the other students who had an interest in this, we, we were like this little secret society. You know, we could only meet in secret um, to play our crumb horns and sing our madrigals.
0: I want to talk a little bit about that, Simon, because that is also fascinating. I also faced a lot of hostility in the mainstream um, sort of institutions when I started harpsichord, Um, and I want to talk about that because I don't think it actually uh, exists as much, though I think there are still remnants of it. But, yes, I do remember there was this um, feeling that if you – If you played the harpsichord or sort of early instruments, you were somehow a failed modern Mm. performer. Did you Mm. have that impression here in Australia?
1: Absolutely. That was very much the the accusation levelled at historical orchestral musicians was that we were failed at the modern version of the instrument. And I think that rests on a misunderstanding of, um, you know, the instruments themselves. It's very easy for a modern bassoon player to look at a, a modern bassoon with upwards of 25 keys and then a baroque bassoon with four keys. And think well. Clearly, my instrument's harder, but in fact, all those those twenty five keys are put there to make the instrument easier, not harder. Exactly. Um, so yeah, it's it's based on a on a misplaced premise, really.
0: Well, I felt the same because a piano. Um, it's easier to not make mistakes when you play a modern piano because the keys are much heavier. Mm. So it means that as you. As you sort of maneuver around the keyboard your fingers have less of a chance of hitting a wrong note whereas on a harpsichord Mm. it's like playing on eggshells i mean i found it exactly what you just said i found it actually much harder Mm. um and and more challenging to to make music on earlier instruments than than it was on the modern counterparts
1: Mm, mm. yep absolutely
0: and so what was it like when you went to uh, holland
1: well, it was, it was great. A whole world opened up in front of me, really, uh, because the Royal Conservatorium at The Hague uh, has a very well-respected early music faculty, um, which attracts teachers from around the world and students from around the world. So all of a sudden, I was in this milieu where I was meeting uh, teachers and students and scholars and researchers and instrumentalists with all different points of view, all different uh, areas of interest. And, um, you know, just the feeling of being able to if you wanted to play a piece of rock music, open your diary and have the names of three Viola de Gamba players within a 10 minute bike ride of your house. I mean, that was just so thrilling for me as as someone who, who grew up in a Viola de Gamba free environment.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Mm-hmm. And um, when was this, Simon? What, what, uh, what years are we talking about? Uh,
1: 92 to 96. I was there.
0: Cause I found that the early nineties were um, a boom, a boon, excuse me, for, uh, historical performance practice recordings. I mean, the recording mm-hmm. industry was still flourishing at that point, and mm-hmm. I remember just inhaling recordings when I moved to Sydney and was able to come to a you know a store that sold them. Mm-hmm. And I think every week I would buy like three three or four CDs and just read the program notes and, and listen to it over and over again. That's right. That, yep. that was my exposure to to historical performance practice at that at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was back in Australia, and and just just reverting back to that hostility. I remember at the con there were. You know, um, cartoons on people's doors that said uh, um, things like um, "I'd rather uh, have period dentistry yeah. um, than have playing on period instruments." Yeah, yeah, the... yeah, that's
1: right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I remember all that too. Uh, Absolutely, um, period dentistry on period instruments. Exactly,
0: and there was of course no early music department at all in any any conservatorium in Sydney. No. Um, and I remember I did my, my, my hopscored work with Paul Dyer and then Stephanie McCallum mm. at citycon but it was only when I went to Montreal that I had your experience of, Oh my God, there's viola de gamba players and crumb horns. <laughs> and I, I, you know, I, I remember working with this Baroque oboist, I'd never heard a Baroque oboe, you know, before. Mm. And also he played cornetto and it sounded like a human voice. I was like you, I think just sort of overwhelmed, um, with excitement
1: Mm, mm. Well, yeah, it's interesting. I think part of that for for me, and I suspect for you too, is just the interest interest in history itself. You know, I mean, the music's one side of it, but the interest in the sort of social context that that created this music, that for me is part of the interest in in historical performance practice too.
0: And then what were your next steps after Holland, Simon?
1: Well, um, after Holland, I moved back to Australia um, because, and it was a difficult decision to make because the work in Europe was frequent, well-paid, stimulating, but I really missed Australia's natural history. You know, I wanted to be back here with the sun above my head and, um, you know, and with my family as well. And so I made the decision to move back to Australia, which was very, very difficult. And I took up a position doing sort of casual lecturing in music history at the School of Music, which was by then part of the ANU, and working as a library assistant. And I also began doing a science degree um, uh, as an undergraduate in uh, Bachelor of Applied Science, actually. And um, I was commuting back and backwards and forwards to Europe. So I was commuting back to the UK to continue working with the Gabrielli Consort. And I did that for about six years. And I, you know, at some stage I had to think, gosh, is this what my future is going to look like? Am I going to be doing this in 15 years? And the, the answer was no, you know, it's not tenable in the long term. And so I decided to stop doing the commuting to do music. Um, By this stage, the Canberra School of Music was, in my opinion, in a pretty parlous state, and it was clear that there was no future in academe for me. And so I, at that point, I decided to go and become a gardener. I thought, um, you know, I'd be better off mowing lawns and cutting hedges for a living than I would trying to be a, a lecturer.
0: And so commuting back and forth, you worked with Gabrielle Consort. Was it also yeah. Les Arts you worked with? And... Yes,
1: that's right. Yeah, I worked with them a little bit um, just for one year. Uh, I think 1995 was the year. Um, in fact, we did a tour to Australia for Musica Viva. That was a pretty strange experience, touring Australia for Music Viva with a French ensemble.
0: <laughs> As the Australian uh, bassoonist. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, and so
1: Jeffrey Burgess, incidentally, was in that ensemble too. Ah, Jeffrey Burgess. Yes. Yeah, one yes. of the earliest sort of generation of historical musicians from Australia.
0: Tell us about your first excerpt today, Simon.
1: Ah, well, my first excerpt um, is by uh, Jean Philippe Ramon. And it uh, is a, a dance that comes from his, uh, I hesitate to call it an opera, I suppose opera shorthand, but the, the piece is Les Indes Galantes. And uh, the piece is a musette uh, on a Now, this dance is named for a musical instrument, the musette, which is a very small indoor bagpipe. So it's not like your big uh, Great Highland pipes. It's a very polite uh, little indoor bagpipe that was seen to be suitable for ladies to play. And uh, this piece is interesting for me because for one amazing moment in musical history, the orchestra contained bagpipes, you know, the opera orchestra had bagpipes, not only bagpipes, but clarinets at the same time, horns, harpsichords, lutes, piccolos, bass violins, all together. So um, it must have been a very different sound world that, that um, Ramon knew. And of course, after the French Revolution, that that all completely changed because these bagpipes were strongly associated with the French aristocracy and everybody who played them basically lost their, lost their heads during the revolution. Um, so, you know, if you want to recreate a remote sound world, you really need to uh, have some of these little bagpipes in your orchestra.
0: That was an excerpt from the Musette en Rondeau from Rameau's Lausanne-Galante with Le Concert de Nation, directed by the great Jordi Saval. So, Simon, tell us a little bit more about the musette. It is incidentally one of my favourite instruments and you introduced me to it as a very young man. Um, and, you know, I'm looking forward to one day when we have it in the Orchestra of the Antipodes. But this extraordinary sound, you're absolutely right, it was part of the French orchestra of the time and it really contributes to this palette of French sound that's so extraordinary. Maybe, maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the instrument and that French sound world.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, the, the musette is a, a small bagpipe, uh, which is blown by bellows. So you have bellows uh, underneath your right arm and then the bag of the pipes under your left arm when you play it. And um, the bag, uh, the music rather, uh, has a special kind of drone on it called a shuttle drone. And a shuttle drone is a small tube of wood about the size of a, 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 a actually a toilet paper roll. <laughs> Remember toilet paper? Yes, from I before? do. <laughs> very, very topical. <laughs> So uh, the drone is that that size. And inside that little wooden uh, tube, that little wooden cylinder, there are uh, 13 bores drilled parallel. And the, the bores are joined up at each end to form a very, very long, or a series of very long tubes. So in many ways, it's related to another instrument I'm interested in, the racket. And then into each of those bores is inserted a double reed, like an oboe or a bassoon has. And then those reeds go into the bag of the instrument. And then the chanters are are, are quite interesting too of the the musette because the musette has two chanters that lie side by side. And this enables you to be able to play uh, two melodies at once. So there's actually a solo repertoire for the musette where it plays double stops. It plays two melodies at the same time, plus the drones. You can play up to five notes at once on the drones. So this is an instrument. which although we think of bagpipes as being very loud, very rough and raucous, like the great highland pipes of Scotland, but this instrument was a very sedate um, instrument for playing indoors. And you see it a lot in French art of Rameau's time. You see it in the paintings of Watteau, for example, Um, the paintings of uh, L'Ancret, Nicolas L'Ancret. There are musettes just draped around everywhere or people playing them (laughs) out for having their their outdoor picnics, their fête galante. So this is an instrument that says let them eat cake like no other really because it was only played by the french aristocracy and they did it when they were play acting at being peasants really
0: that's exactly right
1: <laughs> so, so it's a, it's an instrument uh, an instrument with a really fascinating social history it's, it's just used in that bubble of the french aristocracy from the late 16th century until the french revolution and then of course after the french revolution it completely disappeared off the musical scene because um, the people who played it all had their blocks chopped off.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I mean, exactly the same with the harpsichord. That was the instrument of the um, aristocracy. The new piano was the instrument with the bourgeoisie. It's interesting. The musette scenes in opera, because they generally uh, occur in divertissement, which are kind of like self-contained scenes within um, French, exactly, uh, opera is probably mm. the best way to call it. But, of course, the operatic genres, the theatrical genres in France at the time are so diverse, much mm. more diverse mm. than, than we think. And I just love these scenes, Simon. You know, the, the Musette scene in um, Les galante is to die for. Mm. And I just recently found, you know, I'm just pigeonholing again for future pinch-cut performance um, this beautiful um, little divertissement by Elizabeth Chaquette de la Guerre, just mm. about musettes. Mm-hmm. It's sort kind of like, you know, the shepherds of, um, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, just an extended scene in which everyone just pretends that they're sort of in rural bliss, um, <laughs> play acting at being peasants. Play acting at being peasants, that's exactly. right. <laughs> I wonder what the modern equivalent of that is. I, I've always tried to think of something, you know, like what we would do nowadays to sort of take away from the humdrum of um, Look, um, I think
1: it's the whole hipster movement, you know, of, of, yes. of making your own, you, you know. Bread. And, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Literally that. Growing your own vegetables.
0: Oh, that is brilliant. That is exactly, it's very similar to that. Yeah. And it, um, oh, that's, that's, that's hilarious. And it's only
1: the fact that we live in a, you know, a first world society that allows us to do it really, to, to spend time doing cutesy things like making our own bread and growing our
0: own vegetables. That is brilliant. That is exactly what, what Musette culture was like, in the French <laughs> aristocracy. Tell us, let's, let's go back to your instrument, your main instrument, which is bassoon. Yes. Um, you've uh, been fascinating me for many years talking about reeds and how bassoons sounded. Mm. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the development of the bassoon from its sort of origins to, to around the time of Remo.
1: The earliest ancestor of the bassoon is an instrument called the, the kirtle in English. Sometimes it gets called the dulcian as well these days, but its English name was the kirtle. And that word kirtle comes from the uh, Latin word curtus, meaning short. And what it was was a bass shawm that had been folded in half to make it short. So it was a short bass shawm, if you like, uh, an instrument which is normally um, about two meters tall. They folded it in half, uh, drill two parallel bores into a into a piece of wood, um, join those two bores at the at the end to make a a single continuous bore. And and that was what the kirtle was. So the the kirtle uh, was very, very common instrument uh, across Europe and its colonies in the 16th century. It first appeared in about 1550 um, in Italy, Um, but the Spanish in particular loved it and they took the kirtle with them all over the world to their colonies. So 16th century kirtles have uh, shown up in Bolivia, um, they are depicted in churches in Peru, and that's because one of the functions of this instrument was to accompany church choirs. So if you had a church choir, but you didn't have an, an organ to keep them in tune, um, you would use a, a kirtle um, to, to do that job, to provide the baseline for the singers to, uh, to, to keep them in tune. And uh, this gives rise to one of its other names. The Germans call this instrument the fagot, the choir bassoon. That's right. So, this instrument was really important in church music um, uh, from about 1550 to about 17, oh, 1700, 1720, something like into Bach's lifetime. And it was also used for secular music, uh, for playing with the town weights, for playing dance music, and so forth, up until about 1660. Because in 1660, in France, or possibly the Netherlands, um, the uh, the kirtle was deconstructed and reconstructed um, uh, as a four-piece instrument. So rather than having to drill these very, very long bores through a very long straight piece of wood, um, the makers began to make it in four separate joints so that they could drill shorter bores and the instrument was collapsible and easier to get around. And this instrument, um, it was the bassoon. So the bassoon first appeared in, a, in around about the 1660s. And um, the bassoon was seen as the base member of the, uh, the French oboe family. The, the oboes were a, a, recon, sorry, a deconstruction and reconstruction, a reinvention, if you like, of the shawm, the predecessor to the oboe. And there are many kind of structural and organological differences between those, those two instruments. So the oboe uh, w- w- appeared around about the same time as the bassoon, and by the way, the, the word bassoon comes from French, basson d'aubois, the low sound of the oboe, the low sound, the low member of the oboe family, in other words. And basson d'aubois became basson in English and became bassoon.
0: And of course, what's so, is high wood, is that right? the same thing. Yeah. yeah, that's
1: right. Au is high wood. Vote
0: you know. for oboe.
1: Yep, exactly right. Also means uh heirloom strawberry, a kind of strawberry, by the way. In all black. Oh, cool. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Mountain strawberry. So, um, yeah, so the bassoon appeared around about 1660 as a member of the oboe family. And so then um, the bassoon and the kirtle coexisted for about 50 years because they had different functions. The bassoon was just used with oboes in this newfangled sort of uh, Frenchy type of repertoire. The, uh, the kirtle continued on as an instrument of the town weights and for accompanying church choir and because they had different functions they coexisted for a while but eventually the uh, the kirtle went out of fashion during Bach's lifetime and um, the, the bassoon kind of began its career from that point. Bassoon uh, was part of the oboe band in, in France. And so when Lully created this orchestra out of the the, the, the string band, the 24 violins, and the 12 uh, the oboes, what they call the 12 oboes, les douze grandes roi du roi, the 12 great oboes of the king, <laughs> of which um, some were bassoons. And so the French uh, orchestra always had quite a few bassoons in it. And by the time of uh, Rameau, the French opera had... Uh, eight bassoons in the orchestra. And this is a bit of a shock for people today because uh, when you look at a Baroque orchestra today, you usually, you usually see one desultory bassoon player sitting right up the back of the orchestra, who's <laughs> mainly for there their for the optics, you know, nobody wants to hear the bassoon. But, you know, if you look at, at the depictions of Rameau's orchestra, um, it, you can see that they actually had um, up to eight bassoon players.
0: This is one of the most extraordinary facets of historical performance practice for me Mm. um, is this disparity, actually, and we'll talk about this more in our podcast, this disparity between present day historical performance practice and actually what happened. Mm. (laughs) Mm. And, you know, the only I mean, part of it, we'll discuss the economics of it, but. Uh, I've only known one performance at the Paris Opera in modern times with Emmanuel Aim that has actually eight bassoons.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but you've been part of some uh, reconstructions. In fact, our next clip is, of course, the Gabrieli Consort, which really excels in historical performance practice. Yeah, you've some, some some recordings and um, performances in which the forces of the orchestra very much replicate the what we know about the original uh, circumstances of the premiere. Is is that
1: right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so we've done. Um With the Gabrieli Consort, I recorded Handel's some of Handel's oratorios, and the forces that we used in the orchestra were the forces that we know um, Handel had in the Foundling uh, Hospital performances of of things like Messiah. So, when when Messiah was performed at the Foundling Hospital in London, the first performance I think was in Dublin, but um, when it was performed in London not long thereafter at the Foundling Hospital, the orchestra had four bassoons in it and only three cellos, and this was the usual sort of Uh, proportionality between bassoons and cellos in an 18th century orchestra. There were usually more bassoons than there were cellos. Whereas today, I think uh, a lot of conductors approach a Baroque orchestra working backwards from Mozart. So they say, okay, a Mozart orchestra might have four cellos and it's only got two bassoons. So we'll stick with those forces, but it wasn't necessarily like that uh, in earlier times.
0: Not at all. And what was the effect of that Simon when you, when you had the chance to um, rehearse and perform in that, in that configuration?
1: Oh, absolutely thrilling. You know, the thing about bassoons is they're not actually loud instruments, especially if you set them up with a historical reed. They're not loud, but they do have a certain amount of authority because the sound has a, a buzzy edge to it. And so it makes the, uh, to me, it gives a sort of clarity to the bass section that that you don't get if you've got a, a lot of, uh, of of cellos and few bassoons. So it just picks out the baseline of the music a little bit more clearly to me without actually giving a whole lot more volume.
0: I can't agree more. I think that that's exactly the effect of it, particularly with this, these historical reads. Could you just speak briefly about that? Because that's something I learnt from you, actually, over the last couple of decades, about that also... Um, uh, contemporary uh, players on on historical instruments actually sometimes use a historical reeds, or at least they're coming from the wrong end. Yeah. Is, is that is that is that your understanding?
1: Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, historical reeds. Yes. So we have we don't really have any uh, uh, surviving reeds from before the eighteenth century, uh, and as the eighteenth century wears on, we have more and more kind of original reeds but what we do have is lots of depictions of reeds in, in paintings and artwork we have uh tutors on how to make reeds and uh so from these we, uh, we we kind of use all of these different elements to come up with an idea of what an 18th century histo- historical reed was and uh an 18th century bassoon reed was the exact opposite of a modern bassoon reed The thickest part of the reed blade is at the edges and the thinnest part is in the middle. And when you are preparing the cane to make into a reed, you remove all of the spongy inner tissue from the cane and retain the hard outer bark. Now, with a modern bassoon reed, it's the exact opposite. You remove all of that bark from the outside and just retain the spongy inner cane, what's called the parenchyme tissue of the cane. And then, when you profile the blade of the reed, it's thickest in the centre and thinnest thinnest at the edges. So they are literally diametrically opposed to one another. And so, I think it's really important it behoves historical bassoon players to do research into the historical reeds and um, recreate those reeds because when you do, they they respond differently in your mouth. They uh, they make a different obviously a completely different sound. They're much more responsive, much more bright in their sound. And it opens up a whole different sound world to you.
0: Completely. I remember listening to... um uh bassoons with those kind of reeds in in ensembles with horns in things like Telemann and the blend is extraordinary like just a ho- like four horns and uh and four bassoons for example without any oboes mm. and it sounds like i mean the the horns take on a bassoon like quality and the bassoons take on a horn like quality if you know what yeah, i mean it's, it's I do. it complements it so so extraordinarily well um it was a revelation
1: I agree, yeah, absolutely. Yes, a a classical woodwind section, you know, that like Mozart might have known, is is a a totally different beast from a, a, a modern orchestral woodwind section.
0: Now, our next clip is uh, Gabrieli plays in consort with some Pretorius. Tell us a little bit about this.
1: Ah, yes. Okay. Well, Pretorius was, uh, Michael Pretorius was uh, one of the most important German composers before Bach, I guess, a generation and a half before Bach, really. And he was one of the composers responsible for introducing the Venetian polychoral style of composition into Germany. Now, listeners are probably familiar with that style through the works of Giovanni Gabrielli and uh, Monteverdi. Um, but under Pretorius and his German contemporaries, Schein, Scheidt, Schutz, um Leo Hassler, people like that, it, had, it took on a different sound. And that's because the Germans were really interested in uh, uh, creating consorts of, of woodwind instruments. So, you know, the, the, the Italians had their cornets and, and sackbuts, they had uh, violins and, uh, and, and vials and so forth. But the Germans were interested in creating whole families of these instruments and using them in this uh, church music. And the reason I've selected this uh, recording is because it contains an instrument I play called, I'm not playing it in the recording, but uh, an instrument that I play called the great bass racket. And the racket is an instrument which has no modern descendants. It was an evolutionary dead end, if you like. And the instrument is made from a uh, wooden or in those days, ivory cylinder. And it has lots of bores drilled parallel parallel into the, uh the cylinder nine bores and then they're all joined up so that they become one continuous bore now if you stretch this bore out it's three meters long so this instrument is the same length as a bassoon even though the instrument the body of the instrument is only the size of a let's say a shampoo bottle um and the, the the other interesting thing is that the bore is cylindrical not conical and that means it sounds an octave lower than a conical bore of the same length. So this little instrument, the size of a shampoo bottle sounds as low as a contrabassoon. And it's really interesting because the sound, once again, is not loud, but it has, it's buzzy, loud, it, it's soft and buzzy. And so it has a great deal of authority and it cuts right through um, all the choirs of, of instruments and players, singers rather.
0: That was the, uh, an excerpt from the Pretorius Christmas Mass with the Gabrielli Players and Consort, conducted by Paul McCreesh. And, Simon, were you in that recording?
1: Uh, no, I wasn't, unfortunately.
0: But you've done some other great recordings with Gabrieli Consort, haven't you?
1: I have, yeah. It's been a highlight of my career, actually. It's very exciting to... I think because the... Paul McCreesh, his attention to detail and this fantastic marriage of scholarship and performance... He's a great um, idol of mine, you know, and um,
0: for the longest time have I've tried to model as much as is able, you know, the Orchestra of the Antipodes and Pinch Cut with, with what Paul does. And of course, he toured very recently um, with King Arthur and you played in that production, didn't you, in Melbourne and Adelaide?
1: I did, yes. I was actually really lucky. Um, well, it, it was someone else's mis- misfortune which allowed me to play in that concert. But uh, their, their bassoonist, uh, Zoe, was actually uh, got the flu and she wasn't allowed to fly to Australia. And so Paul McCreish, who was staying with he, here with me um, just for a social visit, came out to breakfast the next morning and said, what are you doing on Tuesday? And I said, oh, nothing, why? And he said, have you got a French baroque bassoon? I said, sure, I've got pinch guts two French baroque bassoons in my office. He said, right, you've got the job. <laughs> All of a sudden, I found myself doing two, two concerts in, yeah, Melbourne and Adelaide. Well, the
0: recording of uh, King Arthur has just been um, garnering great critical acclaim and, um, and some awards as well, um, which is fabulous.
1: Mm, Yes, yeah, really wonderful. And it's such a different sound, I mean, to to what's gone before it. If you think you know what Purcell's theatre music sounded like, you should really listen to this recording, because you might reappraise what you thought you knew.
0: Now, we were just talking earlier about buzzy sounds and different sounds. Um, uh, It reminded me, Simon, of as I've been doing research into historical diction, I realised that Um, What we consider beautiful and appealing today was not always the case. And a good good example, um, which I think of when we talk about um, the changes in taste with instruments and also voices, of course, uh, accents of the past were much more nasal and forward. Um, And French is a really good example. Um, You know, nowadays we think the famous phrase by Louis XIV, uh, l'état c'est moi he probably said, let there' and And of course that um, uh, when you do perform French in historical diction, um, all these hidden rhymes suddenly jump out at you. And of course, people who do Shakespeare and original pronunciation um, find the same. And they f- I, I've talked to actors who've used OP and in, in Shakespeare, and they say that it's much more grounding. It sort of brings it this, this very sort of Hoity uh, posh accent that's been associated with Shakespeare since World War Two. In fact, it takes on a much earthier quality, and I find mm. the same with uh, original pronunciation when I've had the, the 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 time to workshop singers and do that. And it reminds me of these buzzy sounds that, um, you know, nowadays we don't think of nasality as quite, something quite beautiful. But I actually, you know, after immersing yourself in that sound world, it actually becomes really appealing.
1: Mm, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And look, I think this was the reason for the change to the modern style of bassoon reed that happened in the late 19th century was because bassoon players d- desired to make a more, a, a darker sound. And so this is the current modern obsession with bassoon players is to make a dark sound. And that's why I think for a lot of modern bassoon players playing on historical reeds is absolute anathema. Um, because the, the the sound is quite nasalized and buzzy, but you know it, when you consider that that baroque uh, musical language was was considered to be like a language, and with baroque instruments you didn 't have a huge dynamic range to uh, to work with it 's more important that there 's a lot of nuance so that you can communicate um, very uh, nuanced ideas to your listener. And the way that you do that is, is, is you know, by using consonants, really. So I, I think a more nasalized sound in, in historical bassoon playing lets you use more consonants in the music, if that makes sense.
0: Oh, absolutely. And, and harpsichords too. I mean, you know, the... Um, when you hear a great Flemish instrument, it sounds like a cat wailing. I mean, it's beautiful. You know, in some historical organs, that very tart
1: oh, yeah. um,
0: sound, I just, I just, I find it personally very appealing. Um, yeah. uh, you know, we all have different tastes. And mm. I, I think you get acquired tastes as well, just like in, in cuisine, you know. Mm. Um, but I can't agree with you more. I think that there's that sense in the, in the 18th century, certainly, that, that musical phrases and, and musical composition was, was conceived of as a kind of speech-like Construct so clarity is very important. You know, German writers talk about deutlichkeit, the clarity that you mm-hmm. that the listener is able to understand. Whereas in the nineteenth century, of course, it's all about singing; it's about melody. So it's about vowels. There's much less consonances, exactly much darker sounds. And I think that um, uh, you know, when we approach eighteenth-century music, forgetting about the nineteenth century is sometimes quite a quite a um, important tool, at least for me as a sort of time traveller.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I think it's a mistake to kind of work backwards from Marla.
0: <laughs> absolutely. I yeah. No, I kind not agree more on I remember when I first listened to Vials, I also got that sound. It it it's that it's that appealing and very I, I find quite beautiful Yeah, exactly. I don't want to say nasal because I think it sounds like it's uh, Mm, a pejorative. Reedy is a beautiful quality. Yeah, fluty, reedy, um, brown, you know, chocolatey sound. And um, our next uh, excerpt is some gibbons, I believe.
1: Uh, Yes. Yeah, I think um, actually... This this excerpt really high, highlights uh, that kind of sound world that you've just mentioned. And the English file school uh, really raised a domestic instrument. And we forget about domestic instruments as professional musicians too, but domestic music making was the only way you heard music um, in those days. If, you, if you, you, know, you couldn't just put Spotify on your phone, if you wanted to hear music at home, you had to play it yourself. And the English Vial School, I think, takes one of these domestic instruments, the vial, and raises it up to uh, high art. And the English Vial School was really music for highly educated amateurs. It's, it's musicians' music, if you like. Um, and as you say, the sound quality of viols is unlike that of, of, of the violin family. So you can't really recreate this kind of music on a string quartet. You can't get that same buzzy, soft, reedy quality and the, sta- the same uh, homogeneous kind of sonority that you get with the viols. So the, the piece that I've selected is by Orlando Gibbons, who was uh, one of the great exponents of the English viol School.
0: That was an excerpt from Orlando Gibbons' Fantasia in Six Parts with the Viola de Gamba Ensemble fretwork. Now, that beautiful reedy quality, uh, Simon, that we've been discussing about as we recreate and we immerse ourselves in sound worlds of the past, another instrument that I only discovered um, properly when I was over in, in Montreal, actually with my supervisor, Um, a keyboard instrument that was so important to so many composers and performers of the 17th and 18th century was the clavichord. And um, you've had some experience with the clavichord uh,
1: personally yourself? Um, Well, yeah, like you, I I discovered it pretty late. Um, When I was studying in in the Netherlands, uh, a scholar called Menno van Delft uh, did a uh, sort of lecture performance on the clavichord and the music of C.P.E. Bach, and it absolutely blew my mind. Um, the clavichord is is a very, very quiet instrument. You know, you can barely hear this thing unless you're sitting right next to it, but it has a huge expressive range, including the ability to play vibrato, of course, is the only keyboard instrument that can play vibrato. And um, I think maybe that's the reason why uh, C.P.E. Bach loved this instrument so much. Um, you know, he he wrote some of his most interesting music for that instrument. Um, C.P. Bach's actually one of my favourite composers there. And, you know, the romantic, we think of him as a Baroque composer, but really the romantic movement was already stirring in literature with people like Alexander Pope and Goethe and Blake. And we even see the beginnings of romanticism in garden design at that time with people like Capability Brown and Humphrey Repton. And the thing I love about C.P. Bach's music is that you can hear him feeling around for for romanticism in his composition, but he only really has a Baroque musical language that had come down to him to to work with. And I think, you know, some of his wackiest and most forward-looking ideas were played to his musical friends, musical cognoscente, on the clavichord, which, as I say, is is barely audible uh, unless you're sitting next to it. Um, So I I think, to me, if you want to recreate this sound world of C.P. Bach at his most wacky, at his his most experimental, and experience the thrill of what a performance must have sounded like in in a tiny room with this brilliant mind, then you need to employ the instrument that is at its heart, which is the clavichord.
0: Yeah, I share with you this uh, abiding love of C.P. Bach. And the wonderful thing is that he wrote this extraordinary book and very influential book, which I... I have read many, many times. I had the pleasure of reading it in, um, well, I shouldn't say pleasure because it was so challenging. I had to read it in the original <laughs> German uh, when I was doing my oh. PhD and um, we read every single chapter. But just such an extraordinary thinker. And, of course, the style you're referring to at the time was called empfindsamkeit mm. which uh, in French it was sensibilité and in, French, in English it was sensibility. And it was this idea that you had this extremely refined connection with your emotions. And by doing that, you established. So if men and women weeped or, or laughed or had this refined and very, um, responsive, uh, relationship with their emotions, that was a mark of great, uh, humanity of your, of your extraordinary sense to be, uh, true to yourself. And also mm. it sort of established a, a community as well. So, um, in the theater, people laughed and cried together with those people on stage. And when you read, um, CB Bach speak of this, he very famously says, uh, you know, a musician who is not moved, cannot move, um, a listener.
1: Mm -hmm. Uh, So true.
0: Exactly. And what I found just to return to the clavichord, Mm. I think it's an instrument Simon that, um, has, was not built to 18th century standards until fairly recently, um, I call them industrial clavichords. I'm not sure. There are a couple of them at ANU <laughs> and they're instruments that were built in the 1950s and they just sound awful. Or at mm. least I didn't, uh, when I played them, nothing, uh, it didn't speak to me. Mm. Only in the last, I'd say 20 years that builders in Europe have actually started to recreate these extraordinary Saxon clavichords mm. um, that actually have all the qualities you're just talking about. And, um, when you look at the clavichord music of C.P. Bach, it's filled with dynamics from PPP to, mm. to sort of double F. And even and when you play in those industrial clavichords, they barely have two dynamics, but mm-hmm. the, the beautiful replicas, they indeed have everything. And um, in the next ex- excerpt, we're listening actually to a beautiful um, clavichord by uh, Joris Potflieger, who I've met a couple of times in Belgium, and the, the player is Wim Vinters. <music> We just heard an excerpt um, from C.P. Bach's Württemberg Sonata Number no. 1 uh, and the performer there was Wim Vinters on the clavichord of Joris Potflieger. Now, Simon, we talked a little bit about the hostility that we both had as young, as young men <laughs> in Australia to historical performance practice and that, and that does continue a bit today. I, I, of course, have taught every year now for the last seven years historical performance practice courses at tertiary institutions and inevitably I get a student say well you know it's all great to study instruments of the past and read these treatises but do we really know what they did and what's the point in trying to recreate these things and isn't it a a sort of emblem of our decaying culture that we look to the past rather than recreating freshly and probably the most famous um, critic of the historical performance practice movement is a extremely clever um, uh, musicologist called Richard Taruskin, who's probably the most famous musicologist living today. He writes regularly for the New York times. Um, and he's written, I'm just going to read out this long quote because I'd love to chat about it. He's written mm. this back, back in the nineties. It's important to remember the context of this. It's in a book, which our listeners, if you're interested in reading about it, it's a very interesting book, which I've read a couple of times called text and act. Uh, and it's a collection of essays by Taruskin. And he writes in that book, what we had been accustomed to regard as historically authentic performances, I began to see, represented neither any determinable historical prototype nor any coherent revival of practices coeval with the repertories they addressed. Rather, they embodied a whole wish list of modernist values, validated in the academy and the marketplace alike, by an eclectic, opportunistic reading of historical evidence. Historical performers who aim to get to the truth by using period instruments and reviving lost playing techniques actually pick and choose from history's wares, and they do so in a manner that says more about the values of the late 20th century than about those of any earlier era. Now, we've already talked a little bit about um, how some historical performance practice specialists do pick and choose from history's wares and things like reeds and so forth. But yeah, what do you think of, of Teruskin's critiques here?
1: Hmm. Yeah. I wonder if he'd hold the same view today. I wonder. Exactly. I was
0: thinking that as I, as I put this podcast
1: together, Simon, that's a good point. But I, look, the first thing is I, what does he mean by determinable historical prototype? I mean, how would he suggest we determine such a prototype except by the, the exact kind of research that people in our field conduct? I mean, You know, is he suggesting we hold a seance, perhaps, you know, call up the spirit of Bach and ask him directly? The only way we can find out what these historical prototypes were, the only way we can determine them is to conduct the sort of research that we do. And similarly, I think when he says that um, historically informed performance doesn't represent any. Coherent revival of practices coeval with the repertories it addresses. I mean, again, unless he has some kind of in, insight into the way such practices might have been, then I'm sure he'd agree that the only way to find out is by conducting precisely the sort of historical research that we do. And the implication that he has some kind of unique insight into what, what historical prototypes and contemporary practices were, um, that <laughs> You know, such a good insight that he can pronounce the entire HIP movement a pretense is a bit hubristic in my opinion. I mean, I do agree with him that HIP performers pick and choose from history is where, and that's definitely not ideal, but it really it comes from pragmatism, it comes from necessity. Exactly. I mean, for as an example of that, if I could have a copy of a bassoon from every city in Europe, from every decade of the 18th century, so that I could sound a performance of Leipzig-Bach make it sound different from a performance of Weimar Bach or Kürtenbach, then, you know, that'd be great. I would do that. But unfortunately, I'm a jobbing musician and I can't afford that many bassoons. Um, And, you know, so I have to make do by doing my research, trying to recognise broad national and decadal trends in bassoon making in the 18th century, and then trying to winnow my choice down to just four or five instruments, which hopefully will cover me for all of the repertoire I'm employed to play in 21st century Australia, which is basically from Monteverdi to Haydn. Exactly,
0: I can't agree with you more, Simon. I, I, as I read this again, I was thinking I, it's very much of its time, which is the like the mid to late 90s, mm-hmm. when, as we said earlier, the recording interest industry was at its height. Mm. Um, you know, it was actually a valid industry, it is completely dissipated now. I mean, mm-hmm. the last recording I did it cost me money,
1: mm-hmm. it,
0: might, it might surprise our listeners to know that, whereas, of course some of the great musicians like Vladimir Ashkenazi made millions of Mm. dollars out of recording in the 90s. And, um, you know, yes, absolutely. Some of them were opportunistic in that uh, you had one violin strung up in a certain way that played repertoire from Purcell to Mm. Beethoven, you know. And nowadays I think think we've come... Look, I think historical performance practice is about curiosity, you know, Mm. and and experimentation. Um, And I I find great inspiration from these discussions we have about trying, trying different things out, reading a treatise, trying to adapt those playing practices that has been written down in words, um, you know, on the instruments that we, to the best of our knowledge, understand to to have been what the composer or performer might've recognized, Mm. but I do understand exactly like you, you know, four bassoons, I don't even own a harpsichord, you know, it's, and of course, exactly. um, I mean, when I teach this, I often say to my students that, you know, the iPhone that we all hold in our hand, we update that every three years nowadays Mm. and you know, Beethoven and Mozart, they updated their pianos in exactly the same way. So Mm. um, it's, I mean, it's a fascinating journey um, mm-hmm. And I also think that historical performance practice now is been, has become a bit, ha, has become so mainstream in a way that it's actually started to uh, inform should we say, mainstream performance. For example, I you know, recently did Messiah with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra and it was kind of uncontroversial for me to talk about a pure sound mm-hmm. in the ripieno strings without any vibrato, whereas mm-hmm. I'm not sure in the 90s that would have happened. What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree, absolutely. I, I think it, it has become quite mainstream in its own way. And so I think in a way that historically informed performance practice is doing a... a you know doing a service to the performance of music of these times as a whole and look i, I think the goals of historical performance practice are are, are pure you know i think they're good it, it comes from a good place wanting to recreate music as the composer heard it and i i agree with Taraskin that its outcomes are are compromised but I just think, what are the logical extensions of his argument? I mean, is he suggesting that if we can't do historically performed uh, performance perfectly, that, that we shouldn't even try? You know, is he suggesting that we should willfully ignore all the evidence that's come down to us today about how music was performed and how instruments sounded and how ensembles were put together in the composer's day? You know, I, I, I mean, what what's the logical extension of that argument that we leave all the original historical instruments sitting mute in their museum cabinets and, and being not allowed to wonder how they might have sounded? And to me, that's all that just... That would be a dereliction of our duty as musicians.
0: Yeah, I, I agree. It's interesting, Truskin's linking in with um, two sort of antithetical philosophical movements from the um, Frankfurt School. There's Adorno on one hand, who believed that musical culture... Um, had a sort of teleological, that is to say, a progress-oriented sort of uh, pr- uh, direction. And that the best Bach was actually that those in transcription by Webern and Berg. And then on the other hand, you've got someone like Dahlhaus who invented this concept or at least uh, formulated this idea of controlled estrangement, which <laughs> we've been talking about all, all morning, mm. which is this idea that you, you have to forget about the 19th century in order to understand the 18th century. You have mm. to sort of reimagine an alien world, um, without your prejudices in place. And that exactly. that was sort of the, up, up, and now I'm, I'm closer in, I, I have great respect for Adorno and he says extraordinary things about musical culture. Um, but in the end of the day, at the end of the day, I'm more in, in, in sort of sympathy with, with Dahlhaus. It is interesting. Um, I once, <laughs> I was actually present Simon at a conference when Taruskin talked about, he, he castigated a performer, who was explaining why they did something with reference to a treatise. And he got up and he said, well, now you're using the Eichmann defence. That is to say, I'm only following orders.
1: Oh, I see, yeah.
0: And Taraskin was saying, well, you know, as a musician, we, we shouldn't be, um, and look, he has a point too, that we we play poorly or or um, just saying, oh, well, I'm doing this because C.P. Bach or insert treatise writer says to do so. So I think it looks a very nuanced um, field and, I guess what I love about chatting with you and, and the work that we've done over the last couple of decades is that we're both very interested in historical performance practice. And, mm-hmm. and we're, at least I'm constantly looking at fresh research and listening to the new mm-hmm. ensembles. And, you know, what's coming out of Europe in the last five years in terms of reconstructions of Lully's orchestras, um, the seminal recordings of, you know, Evaini Kay reconstructing Handel's um orchestra with enormous quantities of bassoons and oboes i mean <laughs> that that's really been inspiring for me and that that of course postdates taruskin mm. now um let's move on from uh from good old richard taruskin mm. to our next excerpt which is um oh francois lazarevich uh, uh, sorry lazarevich Rus- yes Um, Tell us about this uh, Otterter selection.
1: Oh, okay. Well, I mean, this is very much in the same vein of the clavichord in that he's playing this... This sonata on the baroque flute, on an early French baroque flute, and the flute uh, was again a very, very soft instrument. It's not an instrument you could play outdoors. It's for playing indoors in very small spaces, but just so nuanced and so intimate. And it's it's such a different beast from the modern flute, which is an instrument that can play very, very loud with bone-shattering vibrato. It can cut through a whole symphony orchestra. But the baroque flute is very, very soft, and that wasn't seen as a weakness. That was seen as a strength because a listener you know when, when you're playing the baroque flute the music or when you're listening to the baroque flute i should say the music doesn't come to you you have to go to the music you have to um, you know cup your ears and listen to what the flute player is saying and because of that the flute player can say extremely nuanced things and I just think it's the most expressive instrument and I I can't believe how much the flute changed over the course of the the, the 19th century. A modern flute and a baroque flute are almost like different instruments. So um, that's what this piece is all about, just have a listen to the nuance at a very very soft dynamic level.
0: That was an excerpt from uh, Jacques Otteter, the Allemand from the second suite in C minor for flute and continua with François Lazarevich and Les Musiciens de Saint-Julien. Now, Simon, um, you and I are both interested in historical performance practice, um, and that's, uh, that's something that we, we, is central to our musicianly lives. How do you think it might flourish, and, and what, what do you think lies in the future for the movement?
1: well i think i think scholarship is its great strength actually because It gives you, uh, scholarship gives performers a springboard from which to create new interpretations of the music and to to, to breathe life into the music. And so young musicians are actually going to historically informed performance practice in droves. Um, So I don't think, I think what's important is that we retain the scholarship aspect of um, HIP performances because that's what keeps them fresh and alive and makes them endlessly interesting.
0: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's often, um, I love this, uh, this wonderful German concept, aha, elebness, you know, this concept of- I don't. Uh, suddenly coming to a realisation or a sudden um, <laughs> e- e- expansion of one's consciousness. And I love doing this in, in my classes with HPP, um, playing recordings um, or playing, you know, often comparative recordings and just seeing, and when we, when we sort of look at the, the, the notation that exists and then um, matching that with the, with the hardware, that the composer was familiar with. There's these wonderful moments of, oh, wow, that makes so much sense. And certainly that mirrors my own um, awakening, as it were, with historical performance practice when um, I came to the harpsichord from a piano. Now, we have one last excerpt today, and that is um, from a great ensemble name called Lay Le- Witches. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a great polyglot name, isn't it? Yeah, this, is, um, this piece comes from a manuscript from 1599. Uh, Uh, called the Susanna von Salt manuscript. And Susanna von Salt was a teenage girl from Antwerp who fled to England with her family to seek asylum uh, because of religious persecution of Protestants by uh, the Catholic Spanish overlords of of Belgium at that time. And one thing she took with her when she fled to England was an album in which she transcribed the popular dance tunes and, and Protestant psalms of her day. Um, Now, like all good young women of her age, she played these pieces on the Virginals, which, as you know, is a kind of rectangular domestic harpsichord uh, which was seen fit for ladies to play. And listeners will be familiar with the Virginals as a a common subject in domestic scenes by Dutch master painters, like Johannes Vermeer, I think, depicted a Virginals three or four times. But if you think about it, you know, Dutch master's paintings are littered with musical instruments. They're, They're absolutely everywhere in paintings by Vermeer, Borg, Fabritius, Stein, etc., etc. And the thing I love about this recording of the Susanna von Salt manuscript is that um, the performers have reimagined that whole sound world of the Dutch masters' paintings, and they use the instruments depicted in those paintings to bring the music to life. You know, so I, I imagine these scenes now—these Dutch masters' paintings of let's say merchant class women playing their virginals in solitude while their husband's on business in Indonesia, you know, or young people in all their colorful Baroque finery dancing together under the stern gaze of their black-clad Calvinist elders, uh, you know, that sort of thing. To to me, this music just brings those Dutch master paintings to life. And the first half of the extract, we're going to hear the virginals. In fact, it's a, a special kind of virginals called a musala, where the keyboard's up opposite end of the instrument you'd expect and it's got quite a nutty sort of sound so we will hear the virginals playing with other indoor instruments recorder violin lute Um, but in the second half of the extract you'll get some really rough and ready outdoor instruments to joining in and one of those is the flemish bagpipes like you see in the uh the paintings of peter Bruegel, with all the drones uh, facing forwards pointing at the listener and um, then the other one. I'm glad you've left this to last. This is this is a brilliant instrument called a Rommel pot. Oh, wow. I've never <laughs> so, heard of that. The, the, well, it's got, it's a kind of friction drum. Um, oh, wow. It's po- possibly the most lewd instrument known to organology. I think lewd. Um, you mean L
0: <laughs> E W D?
1: That's exactly <laughs> what. I mean. <laughs> Because, I mean, what the instrument is, it's like a, it's a pig's bladder stretched over a clay pot, to oh, wow. a little drum, but then it's got a wooden stick tied into the skin, like you're bound really tightly into the skin, and this stick sort of sticks up from the pot, and the player uses their friction of their hand, they move their hand up and down the stick to make the drum head vibrate. It's a sort of technique one can only describe as suggestive in polite company. And <laughs> I, I suggest all our listeners go immediately to YouTube to see this instrument being played. It is so rude and so funny. Is- Actually, the name, just before we go, the, the, the name Rommelpot is, is great too. It has a double meaning in Dutch. Rommelpot can mean rumble pot because of the sound of the instrument, the sort of booming rhythmic sound, but it can also mean rubbish bin. So uh, I hope everyone keep an ear out for the rumble pot, the, the, the rumble pot making this sort of booming uh, rhythmic sound. <laughs>
0: Simon, it's been such a pleasure to chat with you this morning and um, I can't wait to see you in person soon. (laughs)
1: Likewise. See you later, Erin. Thank you.